I felt very much drawn to this little book at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi. Um, the plan is that I preach once a month, morning and evening. So in the evening sessions, I'd be looking to go through uh, Malachi. Again, it's a brief book. It shouldn't take us uh, too long, although my pace at St. Melons, it, um, I think I was in Romans for about six years, and I didn't quite finish it before... I left. There's always something that uh, can take me up and uh, focus. And, uh, but I plan to get through Malachi fairly quickly. But, but tonight is something of um, an introduction, the background, looking at the setting of the book and uh, focusing on verse 1 uh, in particular. But then, hopefully, moving forward, we can make some more rapid progress through the book. It is, as I said, the last book of the Old Testament, both in uh, order, as it's set out in our Bibles, but also in chronology. This was the last word of the Lord in Old Testament times to his people. There was no other word from the Lord for over 400 years, until what Malachi says in chapter 3 and verse 1 uh, actually happened. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then in uh, Luke chapter 3, God begins to speak again after that gap of 400 years. Luke chapter 3. And verse 1, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch in Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Etruria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysenus Tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. There was a 400-year gap, silence from God after Malachi. Well, let's look at something of the historical situation for the writing of this particular book. Uh, the return from exile. Israel, as a nation, had been swept into exile in Babylon. Babylon was succeeded by uh, the Persian Empire. And after 70 years, as prophesied by Jeremiah, of exile for the people of God, it's uh, Cyrus who stands up and uh, tells the people of God, the Jews, that they can go home to their homeland it's estimated that around about 50,000 people uh, did return at that particular point. It's only a fraction of those who could have gone home. The great majority of Jews were quite happy to be Babylonians and Persians. Thank you very much. They prospered well in their time in Babylon and in Persia. But those who did go back went and then under the um, time of Haggai and Zechariah the prophets... Uh, they rebuilt the temple. It was about 20 years after they had returned that at last they started to rebuild the temple around about 510 BC. It was many years later 
under Nehemiah. Nehemiah, burden, there he is. He's cupbearer to the king of Persia. Uh, some visitors come from Jerusalem and he says, what news uh, about my homeland? They say, oh, it's very sad. The walls are broken down. The gates are all burned. And uh, Nehemiah, as we know, he's terribly burdened for the state of Jerusalem. And he asks permission of the king to go back. He's given that permission and uh, Nehemiah returns and becomes governor there in Jerusalem. Ezra is the priest. And under the preaching of Ezra, the encouragement of Nehemiah, um, the walls are rebuilt. And Nehemiah spends 12 years there in Jerusalem. And the walls are rebuilt and the gates are set in place at the restoration of the walls and the gates, there's a great celebration uh, in Jerusalem. You can read all about these things in uh, Nehemiah. And um, towards the end of Nehemiah, chapters 8 through to 12, it speaks about the great joy that there was in Jerusalem at the completion of the walls. And it seems at that point, the hearts of the people, the hearts of the people... And that's what really matters. And what really matters tonight is not what we're doing. Well, it doesn't matter what we're doing. Of course it matters. But the primary thing is what motivates what we're doing. And we can be here tonight on autopilot. And we're here because, well, it's expected that we should be here. And you children, why are you here? Good to see some children here. But why are you here? Well, mum and dad have brought me uh, here. Husband, why are you here? Wife, why are you here? Preacher, why are you here? Well, I'm the appointed preacher. I could, I could be said, well, I, I have to be here. You'd certainly notice my uh, absence tonight. But God's looking at the heart. God's looking at the heart. That's all that really matters with him. Not that what we do is immaterial. But if our hearts are right, what we do will be right. But if our hearts are wrong, we can do the right things, but they're not accepted. And that's the burden in the heart of Malachi, but he's preaching at the time of Nehemiah. But more, more of that in a moment. Let's, let's get to the heart of what happens in the time of Nehemiah. If you look at chapter 8 of Nehemiah, and uh, here's the dedication of the walls, and uh, the law is being read, and it's, um, it seems hard on, on the people. Nehemiah 8 and verse 9, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord, to, to our Lord. Do not sorrow for, and here's a wonderful verse, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. And there's the heart of what's happening in Jerusalem, Nehemiah is there. The walls have been rebuilt. 
It's taken some time. There's been real opposition. But now it's completed and the gates are on and there's great joy in the city. And it seems the hearts of the people are right towards the Lord. But then Nehemiah, he's a man of honour. And he'd said to uh, the king of Persia, I, I will return once the project is completed. And so, as a man of his word, and we ought to be men and women of our word, can we be depended upon at work and in our families? And as far as it's possible, if we make a promise, do we look to keep our word? Well, Nehemiah did that. And it must have been quite a wrench for him to leave Jerusalem uh, and go back to be cupbearer to the king, but he promised, and so he, he did. He goes back. But after a period of time, he's allowed to return again to Jerusalem. And on his second visit, which we read about towards the end of the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13 focuses on his uh, return to Jerusalem and his second visit. Nehemiah finds there has been a terrible Decline. We don't know, we can't be sure how long Nehemiah was between his first visit and his second visit. But when he gets back, what a change there has been. What a decline in the expression of their faith uh, he saw. The temple had been desecrated. A Gentile called Tobiah had been given a room in the temple. And that room that should have been used for storing tithes and offerings that the priests could have uh, lived off uh, had been cleared out so that Tobiah could move in and have a comfortable uh, office there in the centre of Jerusalem. Desecration of the temple had taken place. The tithes and the offerings were not being collected as they should have been. And that meant that the priests and the Levites had to go and work their own fields and to, uh, to bring in things for them to subsist off. The service in the temple was half-hearted service. The Sabbaths were not being kept. There were The gates were open and traders would come in and uh, buy and sell on the Lord's day. There were a proliferation of mixed marriages. Jews were marrying foreign wives. And it seems that they were divorcing their Jewish wives and marrying younger foreign wives. And uh, just a little flavour of that towards the end of Nehemiah and uh, chapter 13. And verse 23, in those days, writes Nehemiah, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other peoples. That's the situation that Nehemiah finds when he gets back. A rapid decline. They had lost touch with the living God. And that's the title of the, uh, one of the commentaries I've been looking at by John Benton, Losing Touch with the Living God. There are two in particular commentaries I'd recommend 
uh, to you. They're simple, straightforward, John Benton, Malachi, losing touch with the living God. And uh, John Benton's uh, way of expounding Malachi is that he goes through it sequentially, uh, and it's uh, the way that I, I prefer to, uh, to move through a book. So he starts at chapter 1 and verse 1, and he'll take you through uh, the book of Malachi. Another book that I found very helpful is uh, Campbell Morgan, Malachi's message for today. Campbell Morgan, as you know, was um, minister of Westminster Chapel before uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Up to 1940, Campbell Morgan uh, was there in Westminster Chapel. And uh, it's a really good overview of Malachi by Campbell Morgan, but he's more... um, yeah, he, he gathers different themes together within different chapters. He doesn't go through verse by verse. But nevertheless, it's a really helpful overview of the book. When Nehemiah gets back, he finds that people have lost touch with the living God. Now, it's Malachi, the prophet, who also in his brief prophecy addresses these issues in the land. And uh, it's widely felt, therefore, that Malachi is prophesying either between Nehemiah's first and second visit, as things began to decline, or maybe it's at the time of Nehemiah's second visit, or shortly afterwards, where around about the time, perhaps 420 uh, BC, where Malachi is not only addressing these issues as we go through the book, but he looks at the root cause of this decline. And when we begin to decline and lose touch with the living God, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is that soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? We ought to be striving constantly. It's my constant battle. It must be our constant battle to keep things real, Because if they're not real, we can go through the motions, but um, we can tell there's something wrong. And others can see there's something wrong. So Malachi doesn't only tell the people what's wrong, he goes for the root issue. And then more than that, thankfully, uh, he also addresses the answer. So it's widely concluded that Malachi is preaching during Nehemiah's absence or during his return. Well, as that is the background... Let's have a brief look at the first verse. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Let's think about the scene. Just from that first verse, let's think about the scene. It's Jerusalem, it's Israel, around about 420 BC. And all seems well. All seems well. A casual visitor would have found the temple had been rebuilt. And there it is standing in Jerusalem on Temple Mount. It was finished 80 years or so previously, but it's complete and it is actually functioning. The walls around the city are very impressive. They have been rebuilt And every gateway has had the gates hung well upon them. And because the walls are in place and the gates are all working, 
there is a sense of security in Jerusalem. No more can people just come in and out. They have to approach the gates, which can be well defended. There's a sense of security and peace. And I guess also a degree of satisfaction that can lead to pride. Look at what we did. See the problem now? Look at what we did under Nehemiah. Nehemiah, what a, they elevate him as well. Look at what we have accomplished. That sense of, haven't we done well? So the temple's there. The walls are complete. The casual visitor would see these things. He also, as he approached the temple, he'd see the priests at work. Sacrifices were actually being offered. Offerings were being made. All seems well to the casual observer. Outwardly, everything seems to be fine. What is the problem? And as Malachi addresses the people and he points out the problems, they're shocked. What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean by by that? How, How can this be? Don't you know, Malachi, they are genuinely, as we go through the book, you'll see this sense of shock from the people as Malachi points out the problems. You see, outwardly everything's fine. But the Lord, who is spirit, looks and observes and penetrates and perceives and sees the heart of the matter. In Jerusalem in 420 BC, he saw distracted service. He saw half-hearted service. He saw a dog-eared service. He saw grumpy service. There was much complaining uh, amongst the people. As I say, the people are oblivious. They're somewhat shocked. Let me give you a flavour of that. Chapter 1 and verse 6. A son honours his father, this is God speaking, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honour? If I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? They're, They're shocked. Us? Priests? Despising your name? Can't you see what we're... In what way? You need to explain to us. Verse 7 of the same chapter. God continues. You offer defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? They're shocked. Us? The priests? Defiling you? Chapter 2 and verse 17. God again speaking to the people. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? Chapter 3 and verse 7. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? We haven't gone anywhere. Return? We're here. Whatever 
do you mean? And finally, one more, chapter 3 and verse 13. God speaking. Your word, says God, to the people, have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? We don't understand what you're speaking about. So there is this penetrating analysis by the Lord, and the people are, are shocked. But let's take our casual visitor again. I'd imagine our casual visitor wouldn't have to spend long in Jerusalem to discover discontent amongst the people of God. And let me uh, bring that out here. There are grumblings amongst the people. And uh, God willing, we'll look at this next time that uh, I'm uh, taking us through Malachi. Chapter 1 and verse 2. Here's a most wonderful statement from God. And take it to heart tonight. This is for you. If you're a Christian, it's for me. It's for you if you're yet to believe. Are you saved yet tonight? If you're not saved, why? Why ever not? May I urge you again. Get saved. Don't leave this building without the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Here's a word from God. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now let's see how far these people have sunk. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now what a response. What a response. Don't know if you've ever been in, in love. Remember that? You older couples when you first set eyes on each other. I set eyes on Jill. She was at a fancy dress party. I went to pick up my sister and Jill was there. Jill was my sister's best friend. And Jill was dressed as a garden gnome and I thought, she's the girl for me as soon as I set eyes on her. There comes a point where one says, you know, you're both sort of feeling, yeah, but is she feeling what I'm feeling? And, you know, I, I, I do love you. Leaves you vulnerable. What's the response that's going to come back and God opens his heart? I, I have loved you. <laughs> In what way have you loved us? We, the people saying, we, we find very little evidence that you love us, Lord. You might say that, but where is the evidence? Well, so for us here tonight, now a, a casual visitor to Heath Evangelical Church, a recent uh, member in the church, maybe a new assistant pastor might say, the building's here, it's warm, reasonable number here, morning and, and evening. And the casual visitor might say, there's a, a lovely, thriving church, and they sang so well. Floods of joy o'er my soul like the sea billows roll. Ah, we went with a, there's a wideness in God's mercy. And you know, the, the preacher got a little bit emotional as he talked about the wideness of God's mercy and the love of God that's infinitely kind. But what's really going on here? And what's really going on in your heart? And what really is the heart of this particular fellowship 
like? Well, the Lord knows, and it's the Lord's opinion that we want, and only His opinion really counts. My opinion counts for little. Your opinion counts for little. What does the Lord think about you as an individual and us as a gathered church? Surely we want to know that. Surely we don't want to be deaf to what He's saying to us. Why am I drawn to Malachi? I'm sure He has things to say to us. If we would listen, or he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I know your pastor's been uh, through um, Revelation and these seven churches not too long ago. I remember listening online to um, the address of the church in, in Sardis. Very powerful message. Do we, do we take these things to heart? Do we think, oh, I wish so-and-so had been here to hear that. They need to hear that. You know, so-and-so wasn't here, but you were. And we're all here tonight. We're good at hearing from the poor. Oh, if only so-and-so had been here. Oh, this would be good for that church. But it's this church it's being spoken to. What will we learn? What will we take on board? For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's where God is aiming. What I do, see, I want to emphasize, it's not irrelevant what I do, but the primary, basic, vital area is my intention and my heart and my inclinations. It's where God is looking. Where God is looking. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So what does Jesus see here now? What does Jesus desire from you and from me? There are some most wonderful statements in the Bible, and we ought to focus on them often. Listen to this, Proverbs 23 and 26. What is it that God wants from you and me? My son, give me your... I don't know what you put there. Give me your time. Well, yeah, he does want your time. He wants your tithes and your offerings as well. He wants your time. He wants your money. My son, give me your house. Well, yeah, of course he wants your house. It's not yours. Who's going to have it? Well, I mean, the house I live in. It's over 400 years old. Whose is it? Well, it is mine, but it's not mine. I'm just a steward. Another 100 years, I don't know who'll be living there. It won't be me. I've got a better mansion. So many things we could maybe put there, but what is God wanting? My son, give me your heart. And... Let your eyes observe my ways. So see, we've got the, both the two things there. What I do is important, but the motivation is the first thing. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. What you do is important, but the motivation is the most basic thing, of the most vital importance. My son, give me your heart. So there in 
Jerusalem, 420 BC. There is a man, his name is Malachi, and he's not happy. You wouldn't say that he's uh, grumpy, he's certainly not grumpy, he's not a complaining person, he's not awkward, he's not critical, he's just sad. And he's heavy-hearted. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This word burden, other translations, you'll have the oracle of the word of the Lord. But burden is a good translation because this Hebrew word, now I'm, I have no Hebrew whatsoever, and I know there's probably one or two Hebrew experts here. I've got a smattering of Greek. My dad was uh, Greek, hence Christophides, and I'm sure I've got something of the Greek language in my, my genes. But Hebrew, I'm totally reliant on commentators. But um, this word oracle, or translated here, burden, is a good translation because the Hebrew word is massa, which means heavy loads, uh, the burden. Uh, there's something troubling, Malachi. And it's not trouble at home, in the family or at work. It's a message from the Lord that's weighing heavy on his heart. It's a, it's a heavy burden because he has something to say. And this burden of a message, oh how Malachi wishes that the burden of the message, this hard message, was to the nations out there, to Moab and to Amalek and to Philistia. But it's not. It's a message that's directed at the Lord's covenant people. It's a message from the Lord, the great I am, Jehovah Yahweh, to Israel, uh, His covenant people. Oh, what a burden it is to Him. How He wishes it was a message for the wicked nations out there, but it's a message for those who were the friends of God, descendants of Abraham, the friend of God. And uh, Malachi is not unique. Down through the rolling centuries, there have been men and prophets with a burden. Jeremiah, all ye who pass by, is it nothing to you? The state of Jerusalem, is it nothing uh, to you? Or the burden that came to him. Isaiah, who has believed our message? Who has believed our report? Come to the New Testament and you've got um, the Apostle Paul. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now at least Paul's focus is out there to the lost world. And the gospel is essential and if you're not saved here tonight, oh, how you need the gospel. There's hard news that comes in the gospel. You're a sinner before a holy God. You were made to know God, but because of your sin and your waywardness and your self-centeredness, you're cut off from God. You're under His wrath. You're an object of wrath. You don't know Him. You're dying and you'll be judged and you'll never get home to heaven and only hell will be your lot. This is the end of sin. And it's what you are, a sinner before a holy God. And that's the bad news. But here's the good news and the balm and the glory of the gospel. God desires that you should be in heaven, but your sin will bar you from heaven. So he has sent the rescuer, the redeemer, the saviour, Jesus Christ, oh Jesus, name above all names. What a name he was given. 
He's God from all eternity. He's the second person of the one triune God. He's your creator. He's the sustainer of the universe. But for your sake, he came here 2,000 years ago. He takes humanity to himself. He doesn't stop being God. He's the God-man. One person, two natures. He's come to do you good. He's come to take away your biggest problem. And what is your biggest problem tonight? And I know we're all facing increasing energy bills and we're wondering, however are we going to manage this? And to think how they've gone up and to think now how they might go up further. And maybe that's a big burden and a concern to you. Maybe you've had some difficult health news. But what is your most urgent problem? You turn on the news now, we can hardly watch the news and the sadness that comes through the media. But what is the most urgent problem? Sin before a holy God. If it's not dealt with, we can never go home. And heaven is home. Even as a Christian, I'm still not satisfied. There's more. And there's more. All to be there. All to be there. Get weary of this world. But unless your sin is dealt with, you can never go home. Jesus deals with your sin. He lived for you the perfect life. He keeps the Ten Commandments because you can't do it. He does it for you. I put it this way many times. He sits at the entrance exam for heaven and he puts your name on the paper. And then he dies as if he were you. He dies in your place. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. He rose again the third day because death hangs on to sinners. His resurrection proves he is the son of God and his work actually works. Now what do you need to do? Repent of who you are and what you've done and turn to Jesus Christ and embrace him. His work is finished. You need to do nothing Nothing you can do. It's all been done. Trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel. And if you're not saved, my friend, get saved. But here in Malachi's time, this hard message is for Israel. It's for Israel. And so Malachi is burdened. It's a source of sadness uh, to him. And outwardly, Israel, respectable, religious, and orthodox, and so right. And yet in God's eyes, the heart was cold and calloused, and service was casual and perfunctory. And here we are, two and a half thousand years later, what has God got to say to us? He's saying, my son, give me your heart. And that's the essence of the message. It's what Malachi wants to get at. And Malachi doesn't only point out the difficulties. He goes to the root cause of it all and he points also to the answer. God is desiring that the people might return to him. That's the positive message of Malachi. Return to me, he's saying, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Bring in all the tithes into the storehouse there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out to you such a blessing 
there will not be room enough to receive it. Now, I first came here 1979 as a student. I just started my PhD. I'd been going to City Temple before then, after my quite dramatic conversion in a charismatic church in Brisbane, Australia. I came back to Cardiff to carry on my studies and uh, found a home at the City Temple. And at the time, there were two fine pastors there, Pastor Holmes and Pastor Hunston. And I think your pastor at that time, Vernon Hyam, knew them well. And um, they were good old-fashioned Pentecostal preachers. Uh, the services went with a swing and a redemption hymnal. And we'd sing uh, things like the one we opened up with tonight. So some of my old Pentecostal roots, perhaps, uh, coming out in that. But I was invited to come to Heath Evangelical Church in 1979 by a student friend. There was a crowd at the door. I came in and made my way up the stairs, slowly. People coming up the stairway. You came in through the door. Well, it was a job to find somewhere to, to sit. And I made my way just about there on the gallery in my stripy T-shirt and uh, jeans. It was very quiet, and then some music started, and the procession came out of the door. And these men in suits went and sat down everywhere, and a little grey-haired man came up the steps. Now, he was only 48, but um, the service started, and the hymns I found very slow, and the prayers, as a little children's story. I was missing the swing of redemption hymnal. But then he started to preach, opened the Bible. You know, he did nothing fancy, nothing special. I wouldn't say great oratory, but there was a remarkable power there preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and it hit me. I had to keep on coming, because God was speaking. I remember the secretary would often come out, and he'd say, it's a lovely problem we have, but could you please move up in the pews? They're queuing up outside to get in. Which we had the flip seats put at the, at the back to get people in. Wouldn't it be wonderful, just a little change in the temperature in your heart and mine, and what wonderful things could happen here. We're in the midst of so many houses and the needs around about us. The most urgent need is that they should be saved. How do we feel about that? Let's not lose touch with the living God. What he's done in the past Certainly he can do. Again, can this place be filled? Of course it can be filled. We have a message that is the dynamite of God to the salvation of those who will believe. So let's leave it there for this evening. We're going to go through Malachi. Malachi is a difficult book. He's going to point out some problems. If the cap fits, wear it. But he also gives the answer as we go through. May we take the diagnosis and may we take the medicine. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this brief time in your word. As the prophet Malachi speaks the words you gave to him 2,000 and more years ago, may they come with a fresh power to our hearts as individuals and as a gathered church. To God be the glory, we pray. Amen. Let's finish with this hymn by uh, Top Lady. Uh, object of my first desire, Jesus crucified for me. We'll stand and sing. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.